today, uh, before we begin the sermon, um, uh, I need to acknowledge something that you may or may not know happened last night um, in Colorado Springs. Um, a, a gunman opened fire in an LGBTQ nightclub, um, killing five and injuring 18 others is what I'd last seen reported. And um, what makes it an even more bitter act is that today is the National Day of Trans Remembrance, which you may or may not know. November 20th is the National Day of Trans Remembrance. Um, this year, we um, remember the 32 trans individuals who've been killed this past year, and this morning we are reminded once again of the violence um, that lives in this country and expresses itself in so many different ways, and especially towards those who are marginalized and oppressed. And so I'm going to offer uh, a couple of words here. Whenever I see news like this, I move into a position of prayer, um, which I know is a dangerous word to use right now because it's a word that feels empty and hollow when many people wield it, unfortunately. But for me, let me be clear when I say, a uh, position of prayer is not one of inaction. A position of prayer is one of inviting the Holy Spirit to light ourselves on fire for the betterment of each other and for our world so that the kingdom of God could be made real. So if you uh, say that you are going to pray in response to something like this, I would say do so carefully because you will be called to give of yourself in response. So I offer some words of prayer and then I'm going to invite us all into a time of silent prayer, 32 seconds long, to acknowledge the 32 that we are remembering today. And then we will begin with our scripture reading this morning. And so, my friends, as I pray for the families and loved ones of those who died, I pray also for the LGBTQ community who is reminded once again of the threat that they face for their very existence. May their hearts be comforted and lives protected. If you share that prayer, say amen. I pray also for the gunmen who, while responsible for his actions, is a product of a nation filled with violence and violent rhetoric. May his heart and others like his be transformed. If you share that prayer, say amen. amen. I pray also for the leaders who continue to repeat rhetoric that leads to death. When leaders of incredible influence refer to LGBTQ people as, and I apologize in advance for this language, but as a pastor and a preacher, I believe it's my duty to be direct. When people of incredible influence refer to LGBTQ people as groomers or pedophiles or child abusers or demonic, they should not act surprised when easily influenced individuals commit horrendous acts of violence in response. May their hearts be convicted and repentance made real. If you share that prayer, say amen. amen. And I pray also for us, who will gather around tables this week to express gratitude for life's many blessings. May we feel convicted. May we repent. May we be comforted in our affliction. May we be afflicted in our comfort. May we turn our gratitude into loving action that invites all to be blessed and our tables to grow wider and ever more crowded. 
May beloved, may every beloved child upon this earth know that they are loved by God and by us. If you share that prayer, say amen. And so now I invite us to a time of 32 seconds of silent prayer as we honor the 32 lives lost this year. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Okay. And in, the, in those dark moments, in days like today, I think it's even more important to hear good news. And again, just like prayer, I caution you, good news will call us into action. I suffer from a condition that I imagine many others in this room do as well. Um, something that impacts my life on an almost daily basis, impacts those around me, makes their lives more difficult as a result. It makes me irritable and, and easily frustrated and, quite frankly, not too fun to be around. I'm referring, of course, to hanger. It is, if you don't know, uh, it's the idea that when someone becomes hungry over a period of time, like for me, I don't know, 30 minutes, um, you begin to develop the symptoms that I just described. You get easily irritated. You, you get angry. We call it hunger plus anger. Hangry, right? Hanger. Who in here suffers from hanger? Say amen. amen. And who in here lives with somebody who suffers from hanger? Say amen. amen. If you're at home, call out the person that you are watching with. Hanger is a very real thing, and, and, and I think it's something that has been true for, um, all, I don't know, eternity. And so that's why I think in John chapter 6 today, Jesus compares himself to something that we can all relate to, bread. Let's begin in chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus replied, I assure you that you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate all the food you wanted. Don't work for the food that doesn't last, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the human one will give you. God the Father has confirmed him as his agent to give life. And they asked Jesus, what must we do in order to accomplish what God requires? And Jesus replied, this is what God requires, that you believe in him whom God sent. And then they asked, what miraculous sign will you do what, that we can see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus told them, I assure you, it wasn't Moses who gave the bread from heaven to you, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread all the time. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus knows something that is true about people then and today, that hanger can go beyond our stomachs. 
Hanger can infect more than just our stomachs. Have you ever suffered from a spiritual hanger? You're unhappy. You're unfulfilled. You, you feel like something in you is missing. You're not as kind as you'd like to be, not as loving, not as hope-filled, and you just can't put your finger on why. Maybe you just need a juice box, or maybe there's something else going on. I find that spiritual nourishment can be just as critical as grabbing a Snickers bar or having that uh, juice box or that snack to help push us through our anger. Spiritual nourishment looks like those little things along the way, the daily spiritual practices or regular spiritual practices. I don't know which ones resonate most with you. Maybe it is prayer. Maybe it's scripture reading. Maybe it's uh, having faith-filled conversations with friends, or maybe it's something else that I haven't named. And yet, without these regular spiritual practices, I notice that I get hangrier as a result. Maybe that's why Jesus starts with, I am bread. You know, in John, Jesus is going to compare himself to a lot of different things, but before he's light or resurrection or way or truth or life, he is simply bread. Because when you're hangry, is there really anything else that matters beyond your next meal? No. Have you ever found yourself in scripture or in worship or in prayer for the first time in a long time or for the first meaningful time in a time of simply going through the motions of life and that scripture jumps off the page or that sermon strikes you because the sermons here are really good and that hymn hits you or that voice of God rings so loudly, so clearly, these moments strike us like that first bite of a delicious meal when hunger had set in more than we knew. Jesus compares himself to something consumable because in part, I think it's exactly what he wants us to do. Jesus wants us to consume who he is and what he lives for. Now, that might be a weird word to use. Consuming has a negative connotation in today's Christian church, especially in America, where we have a very consumer church model that's skyrocketed in the last few decades as people search for churches where they can simply consume worship and preaching without engaging in the deeper life of the Christian community and the community beyond that church. Maybe you think you found a church like that this morning, and I'm sorry to say that you're profoundly mistaken because we aspire to be a church that lives into our fivefold covenant that we describe here as the prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness that we have to offer in support of the work that God is up to here at AUMC. I think that consumer-driven church has been pretty detrimental to American Christianity, honestly. Consumer-driven consumer church is actually a really American-style church when you think about it. Wouldn't we be the ones to turn it into a consumerist product? It's been so damaging, I think, because we've convinced ourselves that somewhere along the way, church exists to support me, to teach me, to guide me, to love me, to inspire me, to feed me in whatever ways I need to be fed. And yes, hear me say clearly that churches should absolutely help individuals grow in their faith. In fact, I think it's an indictment on churches and the ways that we fail to help people grow in their love of God and their life outside of the church. But it's got to go deeper than simply what does church offer me. It's got to go further than what, are, what have you done for me lately or we're just another self-help outlet. And the rise of consumerism in church is disappointing. But before we throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater, we ought to consider why it is that Jesus first refers to himself as something consumable. Let's take bread, for instance. Oh, luscious, wonderful bread. Cornbread, dinner rolls. What's your favorite bread that you're going to have this week? And if you can't have bread, I am so sorry. We all have our cross to bear. Jesus says he's like bread, but he is different, he says. 
where typical bread leaves us hungry again and again. Oh, darn you carbs. Jesus is the bread of life, something significant and sustaining that leaves us eternally satisfied. You know, it's interesting, when I eat bread, it becomes a part of me. It gets digested, broken down, turned into fuel so that I might continue to live. It becomes less so that I might be able to live more. And yet when we consume Christ, when we consume Jesus, who he is, what he lives for, something else happens. There's this reciprocal nature where, yes, Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection does become less so that we might have life more abundantly, but then Jesus invites us to also become less so that God's love could be more abundant in the world around us. There's this reciprocal nature of what happens when we consume the bread of life. And so my friends, first, the the text invites us to get fed with the bread of life that changes hearts and lasts eternally. But, but eating the bread of life doesn't just stop at getting fed. In fact, I'd argue that another one of the great pitfalls in American Christianity and in our churches is our inability to remain hungry. And not, not the insatiable consumeristic hunger of always needing more and more and more, but I'm talking about hunger in a different way. What do I mean? This time of year always makes me think of um, college freshmen who are returning home for perhaps the first time at Thanksgiving. I don't know if, any, if there's anybody who's returned home for, for this Thanksgiving week here with us or watching online. Maybe you're going home uh, this week. I think about myself, freshman year of college. There's no one more sure of themselves than the freshman who's just been dropped off at college. Right? At least that was me. I've got it all figured out. Thank God I am out of my parents' house so I can finally show the world what it looks like to live. And then I had to find the laundromat. And then I had to figure out how to make every meal for myself. I ate a lot of bologna and mayonnaise. And then I had to figure out how to do everything for myself. I had to figure out how to stretch a dollar further than I had ever stretched it before. And before long, by the time Thanksgiving rolled around, I realized, I don't know that much. And I'd like to say that I've matured to the point where I don't ever feel that way ever again, I, that I never get on my high horse, but the reality is there's plenty of times in my life that I've figured it all out, right? Have you? Whether it was that first job that I had that I knew I had it all figured out and I was fired 18 months later, or whether it was being in seminary and just knowing I had it all figured out when I didn't know what it meant to be a pastor, when Reagan and I first got married, I thought I had it all figured out until I realized I didn't. We have it all figured out, and then we're reminded over and over again, that there's so much more to learn. When Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, it resonates with us because who doesn't love the idea of feeling full, right? Like you just ate a whole loaf of bread by yourself. My gosh. There's danger in feeling full um, because then you feel like there's not possibly room for any more. I think about last night, Reagan and I celebrated 11 years of marriage and uh, still don't have it all figured out. And uh, to celebrate, all of our kids got sick. Um, <laughs> so we ended up having our anniversary dinner. It was a Chinese takeout from Wu Wei Din up in Plano, who makes fantastic, uh, authentic Hong Kong-style cuisine. I had the uh, beef and tendon noodle soups. Come for the beef, stay for the tendons. Um, it's really yummy. And uh, we had it all spread out on our bed on a towel, and uh, that was our... Uh, that was our anniversary dinner. We ate so much. We had egg rolls and crab rangoon and um, uh, scallion pancakes and a bowl of soup that I just kept force-feeding myself until I really felt like I was going to explode. Have you ever felt the same way in your faith? There's not room for any more. 
I've gotten what I can out of my faith, out of Jesus, out of the church. You fill in the blank. You know every, basically everything you need to know. I've got this figured out. I figured it out. I'm full. There's not room for any more. I, I think it's important in our faith as we feast on the bread of life that is Christ that we've got to stay hungry at the same time. Obviously, Jesus tells us that the bread of life fills us in this sort of eternal spiritual sense, but I'm, what I'm talking about is we ought to stay teachable, or maybe humble is another good word. We ought to stay hungry, hungry for more, not more stuff, but hungry for more teaching, more love, more joy, more depth, more music, more faith, more challenge, more conviction, more grace, more of whatever it is that Jesus has to offer us this very day, this very morning, this very moment in our life. The original Greek word for disciple in the Gospels is mathetes, or more literally, learner, but, but not learner in just the strictly intellectual sense that we tend to use that word. Mathetes means to learn new ways of being, to imitate the one who is teaching, allowing yourself to be moved into a new way of life, to be discipled. When Christ disciples us, my friends, we allow, when we allow ourselves to be discipled, we adopt a position of hunger, a position that says, Christ, lead me, mold me, shape me, move me in whatever way you see fit. Never let me feel as though I've arrived, that I'm now a finished product in this life. And so as we taste the bread of life in Christ, we have to remember that Christ may be filling, but let's not fool ourselves into thinking we're full. Get fed, stay hungry. The last piece of wisdom I see in our text this morning is Christ's challenge to feed the world. Feed the world. Chapter 6 of John's Gospel is a bread-filled chapter. Part I didn't read comes right before the scene that we saw. It's the illustration of, of a miracle of feeding thousands of listeners through the gift of one boy's decision to offer what he had to the people around him. Jesus takes what appears to be a modest gift from this little boy, a, a paltry one even, five barley loaves, a couple of fish. And Jesus used that gift to fill every single person there. You know, it could be said that optimism is a dying trait in our world today. Has optimism been dying in you in recent years? I know it has for me. Cynicism is chic in media in politics, and unfortunately in the church as well. And we've got a good reason to be cynical. Trump's back on Twitter, right? Did you hear? Um, it's a little joke. Just put it in your pocket. More seriously, we have lots of right reasons to be cynical. Gay marriage rights are under attack once again. Our LGBTQ siblings are not safe in their safe spaces. The denomination that we belong to here in the UMC is having an identity crisis that's only been going on for, I don't know, since we started 50 years ago. But just because we have the right to be cynical, and we do have the right to be cynical, does not mean that as people of faith we can't, in good faith, choose cynicism. I'm stepping on my own toes right now, my friends. John is shouting from the rafters in chapter 6 that cynicism is deeply overrated. When Jesus is gathered with a crowd of thousands and food is sparse and bellies are empty and people are getting hangry, he and everyone else there has every right to be cynical. His disciple Andrew, being a realist, he would probably say, raises a cynical voice with a pointed question. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Right? He's looking out at the mega theater. But Jesus finds a way. 
And the people are fed, even those who wondered how such a meager meal could get the job done. As people of faith, my friends, especially as Christians, we must never underestimate the gifts that God has given us, even if those gifts are as seemingly small as a few loaves and a couple of fish. You'd be amazed at what God can use to feed the world. At the same time, nor should we overestimate ourselves to the point where Jesus or God is no longer necessary. Even the most zealous of children on their own cannot make five loaves last 5,000 people. The magic happens when we humbly offer what we have and trust that God will cover the gap. I think our world needs a comeback for optimism, not a foolish hope, but a deep-seated optimism, not a sense that things are getting better because we see the signs, as John would say. Even the disciples beg for a sign that Jesus is who he says he is. But true optimism sees a crowd full of hungry bellies, a handful of food, and knows that somehow, some way, God will prove God's self once again. What would happen if we truly believed that not only is Jesus the bread of life, but by his grace, we could feed the world. What would happen if we trusted in the gifts God has given us, meager as they may seem, and offered them up for God to use? What would happen if we rejected the trend of cynicism and opted instead for an optimism that outsiders see as foolish until the bread basket finally finds its way to them full as can be? What would happen if we tasted the bread of life, allowed it to teach us, to lead us, to disciple us, and offered it to a hangry world? Could it change our faith? Could it change our life? Could it change our world? Not only do I think a changed world is possible, I think it's promised through the testimony of John and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so John tells us, this Sunday before Thanksgiving. Get fed, stay hungry, and feed the world. Amen.